Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with my friend and mayor of Burlington, Vermont, Moreau Weinberger. He's one of my favorite mayors of one of my favorite cities. We talked about what he's learned in leading a city since 2012, how he sets his priorities and builds coalitions for getting the hard things done, from managing a financial crisis he inherited, to responding to COVID, to being a national leader in responding to climate change. We talked about his life, his indirect path to being a mayor, and what a perfect 24 hours in Burlington would entail. Enjoy. Mayor Moreau Weinberger, welcome to an honorable profession. It is great to be talking to one of my favorite mayors of one of my favorite cities today. Ryan, it's great to be with you. Thank you for doing this podcast. I know you've been at it for, for a long time. It's been, it's been a great part of what the New Deal is, and, and uh, I'm excited to be on with you. Thank you. So I love Burlington, but tell the world about When this. was the last time you were in Burlington, right? It was five or six years ago. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, uh, did you let me know that I, you were in I town? I didn't let you know. I think it was pre-New <laughs> pre, pre Deal. But, um, but it's just a, such a vibrant, fun city. But tell the world, for those who haven't had a chance to go to Burlington, Vermont, what's your city like? Burlington's a great city. I mean, we're right on the, the shores of Lake Champlain, which is a just spectacular lake. The, the view from the Burlington waterfront is one of the best, best views in the world. You look out across this beautiful lake and see the Adirondacks on the other side. We are near the Green Mountains as well. So the access to the outdoors is uh, kind of almost unparalleled in a, in a city. But Burlington is, despite that natural setting, it's a real city. We have about 45,000 residents. It feels much bigger than that at times because we have lots of visitors. To me, what drew me to the place is uh, I was born and raised in Vermont, but I was born and raised in rural Vermont and then left the state for, for college and grad school and worked up and down the East Coast uh, in, in politics and in housing. And I always knew I was going to get back to Vermont, but didn't want to go back to a dirt road like where I'd grown up. I, I needed to be in a city. And, and Burlington, to me, it, it's got the, the arts and the culture and the food of a great American city while also having that familiarity of a, of a small town that I grew up with. You can walk down the street and know a lot of people. I've always loved that. It's part of what I love being there. Yeah, great downtown, great great beers, great great food, everything. It's, it's so fun. It, it's a real authentic downtown. We have one of the most successful pedestrian marketplaces of any city in, in the country. It's where 40 years into this experiment, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of the Church Street Marketplace. It's a great pedestrian street with outdoor eating and buskers and great retail, most of which is, is sort of local, authentic retail. And then we, we are, are a seven-minute walk from this waterfront, which uh, we have 
uh, invested in for decades as well, turned it from this post-industrial waterfront into just a, a wonderful place uh, to be and to bike and to skateboard or just to hang out in a park and sit on a blanket. Can I talk about that? As you, as you mentioned, you, had a, you grew up in Vermont, but then you had a sort of a winding path for you coming back. Can you talk a little bit about your career and how you decided to become a mayor eventually, but the steps that got you there? Well, I think in some ways I was always headed towards something like this. I, I grew up in one of those, you know, family with two younger sisters, both of my parents. We basically had dinner every night and we talked about the world and current events and, and politics, government. It, I, I somehow, I think night after night, uh, kind of got the message that, that politics mattered and um, that public service mattered. And that was reinforced while I was uh, in college. I had this great opportunity to serve as a intern and mail clerk for Senator Leahy, who, um, as we're talking, has just announced his retirement this week uh, after he'll, he'll have served for 48 years, really a remarkable uh, career. So I really, I got to see what a high functioning government office can, can look like. And he taught me lessons or just, you know, it wasn't like the tennis center had his uh, <laughs> hand on my shoulder exactly, but like being in that office for eight months taught me about collaboration across the aisle, taught me about the just sort of pragmatism of getting things done. It, I came away from that experience. Unlike a lot of people who come to DC for the first time and turned off by it, I, I was energized by it. To me, it was like, wow, like, you know, people may have disagreements, but you know, there's a lot of people working to, to improve their communities. And um, so I sort of always knew after that, that uh, at some point I'd like to give, to, to throw my hat in the ring in one way or another. That opportunity didn't come for a while. I, I, I worked on a couple campaigns, big U.S. Senate campaign in Pennsylvania, Harris Wofford uh, was big U.S. Senate racer. I got exposed to that, kind of, you know, got the campaign bug from that. But ended up having a whole career in housing. I went to a baseball game at one point with an old family friend, a Red Sox game. And uh, I, I told him I was thinking of becoming an, uh, an urban planner. And he said, you know, Moreau, you don't want to be a planner. If you want to impact the way communities are built, you either got to be a developer or a politician. And sort of ended up doing both <laughs> over time here. So I, I had this career in housing, got to build hundreds of homes in a number of states, moved back to Vermont, started my own business, uh, something we called it the Heartland Group. Me and a partner, we built over a decade about 200 homes from northern Vermont to southern New Hampshire. And uh, also in that really had the harrowing experience of being in real estate when that 2008 recession hit. In some ways, that was the last really important step for me to, I think, do this. And that I, I, I learned a lot about how to navigate through uncertain financial times and deal with banks and debt. And it was, it was a hard time. But as I was working my way through that, I was also serving as a volunteer airport commissioner, which is one of the dozens of boards and commissions the city has to help manage the city. And in that, I saw, I had kind of a front row seat for some really terrible mismanagement of the city by the, the, prior, the prior mayor. And uh, I, they were making mistakes that I just uh, knew I, I wouldn't make. I knew I could help fix. And I decided, especially when looking around and seeing that no one else who was talking about running for what was going to be an open mayor seat had any financial background, I, I kind of knew having just lived through the, the, that recession that I, I could help. I, I could give the city what it needed, which was some leadership out of this financial crisis, which was quite deep. We had fallen just as uh, after. <laughs> It, we got to the point where the city was on the edge of junk bond status. So it was, it was, it was in a, a tough situation. And that 
that message um, resonated with people at that moment in a way that, you know, it might have been unlikely for someone who had never served in office to uh, get elected in Burlington. I was, I was running, uh, ended up having to run against three other Democratic candidates to become the Democratic nominee for mayor. To win the nomination, I had to succeed in a, in a caucus. And it was quite a day. It was, uh, the, the way this caucus worked is- Yeah, explain that, because that's not usual. Basically, the caucus was a day in no- early November for a general election in March. And anybody could show up and vote in this caucus if they were in line and a registered voter by 1 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. 1,330 people showed up. And each of the four candidates, the other three guys were all elected officials serving in state government or city government. Each of us had five minutes to make, uh, kind of introduce ourselves and that was my first real political speech was to a 1,300 person crowd in this auditorium gymnasium that look, looks just like that gymnasium from Hoosiers, if you can kind of picture people up in the balconies. It was, it was intense. And then we started voting. And after the first round of voting, I was in second place. Fourth place candidate dropped away, we voted again. I was still in second place after the, the second round of voting. And the, the third place guy by the caucus rules was out and then had a third ballot. We're now six hours in because, you know, it takes a long time to count up the ballots in between. There was this frenzy of activity for a 15 minute period when the ballots were open. People were like, had, had been there, they'd gone home. There are all sorts of stories about people leaving food on the table at restaurants to come back and cast their third ballot. I, about two minutes before the, the, the ballot closed, realized I had taken off my jacket and left it on the other side of the gymnasium and it had my ballot in it. I had to go sprinting across the room to grab the ballot. It was one of the last ballots in. And then they closed. These cardboard boxes moved into the basement and were tallied up there. About 100 people went into the basement. It's like dungeon-like setting down there, crowding around. And we counted up the ballots. And at the end of the, the counting, I had 540 votes. And my opponent had exactly 540 votes. It was a dead tie. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. And had you forgotten your ballot? Exactly. That would be a story told across generations. So we ended up suspending the caucus. You couldn't have a legitimate fourth ballot right then. People had gone home. It was sort of a political work. So, you know, by this point, I did have some experience with campaigns, and that really kicked in here. I, I knew how to work a list, and we printed out all 1,330 names on big pieces of paper, put them up on the walls inside my house, had dozens of campaign volunteers come through, and figure out who was going to reach out to each of these people. I mean, it was only, that was the rule. You had to have been on the original list to vote in the final, the final vote here. And uh, when we had that fourth round a month later, it, it wasn't close. We ended up winning by 125 votes. And uh, uh, the following March, I was elected by 58% of the vote in the general election. And here we are 10 years later. Is it still done this way? <laughs> it is. We really? still do have caucuses. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's quite a system, but it, um, you know, I kind of like it at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so talk to me about what it's like, you know, you battle your way through to, to, to be elected and now you're facing crisis, right? So like when you step into that role, what's, yeah. what's the first three things you're trying to do to stabilize your city? Because you're not going to be able to get anything accomplished if your city Yeah, fails. No, you're totally right. It was really quite interesting because there was sort of awareness of the headlines of what had gone wrong. There, it was really quite a, 
uh, mismanaged, like this, basically the, there was $17 million that was spent without proper authorization and, and not legally. So like that much was clear, but the details um, really w were not publicly clear until after I was elected. Just a few days after I was elected, uh, this audit came out that detailed the fact that basically we were facing a liquidity crisis where there was one bank that was still like essentially advancing large amounts of money towards the city and through these tax anticipation notes, no one else was willing to do it. No one was like willing to give the city lease financing. So there any number of things at that fragile moment could have tripped off a, you know, a real crisis that would have taken, uh, it would, you, you know, Burlington, we, we were, you could have, end, we could have ended up in receivership was what became clear in those opening weeks I was elected. Moody's realized that they down, they, while just days after I was in office, they downgraded us to the edge of junk bond status with a negative outlook, which basically was like, we're going to, we're going to down you grade D again if you don't do something. I spent, so a lot of, I guess what I'm trying to say is one first step was really trying to understand the problem fully, which you couldn't do from outside government. And I, and I, so I, I talked Talked to everybody, including our auditors, ended up playing a pretty clear role. They they sensitized me to the, how fragile the, the liquidity situation was, and they they um, recommended that we take a step that uh, none of the political people liked. It was basically I ended up going making a decision to go back to the voters just six months into office, and the first real kind of high profile act of the administration was ask people to approve a nine million dollar. It was essentially a deficit bond, but we didn't use that word. We kind of, you know, it was, a, it was a stabilization effort and it was allowing, basically what it, what it did, the idea was we'd take $9 million, take out this short-term financing that was really kind of uncertain and fragile and, and pay this deficit off over a long period of time. People thought, you know, this is a terrible way to start a mayorship, like going and asking people to raise their taxes to deal with this issue. But I, I actually, the New Deal helped me in this moment. I was here and heard Martin O'Malley. He said something, former mayor of Baltimore, that always stuck with me, that good leaders make themselves vulnerable and people respond to that vulnerability. And, and that's, that's what leadership in part is. And so I just, I, I threw myself into it. I went and waged another massive campaign just six months into office. I needed to get a two-thirds vote for this to pass. And um, people were very skeptical it would pass. But, you know, I went to every Rotary meeting and little community meeting I could. And really, I think people didn't necessarily fully understand what they were voting for, but they could see how far out there I was pushing for this. And I think they did respond to that, like, the, like O'Malley had said. And we got 72% of the vote. And that was a first critical step towards turning this around. And uh, we, I'm happy to say it took me, there's lots of complicated detail and, ha and everything that needed to, we ended up having a massive federal lawsuit that we had to settle. I had to deal with this city-owned telecommunications company that was uh, this financial anchor. And it was a very, it took years to get, it took eight full years. But um, after eight years, we got our AA credit rating back and, We've saved Burlington voters tens of millions of dollars uh, in interest costs through those uh, upgrades. Oh, my God. So while you're trying to save the city and restore the credit, you also are trying to address all the issues of your city, which any mayor is constantly trying to do. How did you set your priorities and what, what were some of the things you wanted to work on? Well, the answer to that, Ryan, of course, 
these events we're talking about are now almost 10 years ago. I've just been recently elected to my fourth uh, three-year term. We, <laughs> we do everything a little, <laughs> little uh, uniquely in Vermont. And um, so, of course, that answer has, has, has changed some over time. I mean, initially, I was very focused on, especially after the CA come through this time of really having lost faith in local government because of these financial scandals, I was very conscious of, we, we kept very close track of every campaign commitment that I had made in that long initial campaign. And uh, we thought it was very important that we make good on pretty much everything we said. And we released a report after, uh, after you know, before my first reelection saying that we had like, basically complete, completed something like 91% of our campaign promises. And, and uh, a, a lot of that was focused around, as someone who had been a developer, I, w I, I also thought I could really um, move some of these long-term public works projects that had been sort of stuck installed for a long time and was focused on doing that. Some of them took longer than I, than I wanted, but in my nine years, we have done everything from building a a 21st century bus terminal, something that had been a project that had been stuck for decades. We, we have this park in the center of the city that had fallen into disrepair and there had been many years of talk about refurbishing it just as, uh, just as the pandemic, we, we, in the pandemic, we completed um, rebuilding that. It's a beautiful city hall park um, now and is uh, much appreciated. We've rebuilt the entire northern waterfront with uh, everything from a world-class skate park that Tony Hawk helped us uh, open to a community sailing center that is one of the great community sailing centers in the country to adding to the economic vitality of the waterfront. We, we, were, we are the largest community on Lake Champlain and we had the ninth, ninth largest marina when I was uh, oh. <laughs> first elected. We've changed that. We now have hundreds of additional boat slips that allow both residents and locals as well, and visitors to enjoy our waterfront and has, is generating quite a bit of economic activity. So early on, they're, they're, that's the focus. Uh, I, I, I have found one of the really compelling things about being mayor over time is that as a mayor, you are on the front lines of the challenges of the day. So we have ended up having major initiatives led out of my office on everything from addressing the climate emergency with a very aggressive, ambitious plan to be a, a, a net zero city by 2030 across electricity, ground transportation, and the thermal envelopes of, of buildings. And we're, we're leading the way with that with our city-owned electric utility to battling the opioid crisis. We, we really took on from our police department, completely changing the way we responded to overdoses and before the pandemic, it looked like we were making progress. We had cut overdose deaths by 50%. We've had a big setback during the pandemic and we're kind of going back, redoubling those efforts now. It's very sad. To having an early learning initiative, we have an infants and toddlers scholarship and child care expansion grant program that has dramatically expanded the number of child care slots we have in Burlington. So it's uh, especially at a time until recently when the federal government was doing so little about these major issues. Uh, mayors have been positioned to be some of the most effective, impactful actors on these uh, you know, issues, issues that are confronting America right now. Yeah. Tell me about the experience during COVID. I mean, I think this is it's interesting because the areas of early childhood, the areas of opioid response are generally not city responses or responsibilities. Um, but you've been you've created some really interesting models around it. And then pandemic response usually isn't left up to cities. Yeah. And so talk to me about like the, the public health efforts you've been making, especially during COVID to try to keep your community safe. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to talk about this, Ryan. I, I think there's something important to, from this that, that should impact the way we go forward from here with respect to public health. So we uh, I, somehow in uh, whenever I came in the decades uh, up until 2020 across some reference to 1918, it, I was just stunned by the devastation of that pandemic. So, you know, I'd actually... When we started hearing these rumors, these re reports coming out of China of the, the, this pandemic, um, we, I, I, put a, I, I put one of my top staff, we have a chief innovation officer, a position I had created uh, to help us deal with unexpected events in part um, uh, and, and do new things. And I asked him to go look into the, in 1918, did the actions of municipalities make a difference? And he came back in less than a day, having found what has now become a pretty famous case study comparing St. Louis to Philadelphia in 1918. They, 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 had like, they both had their first death on the same day from that pandemic. Philadelphia's, uh, St. Louis's response was to do everything they could think of to contain the virus. They shut things down, they stopped parades, they, they, they closed theaters and whatnot. Philadelphia went the opposite direction. Uh, the, the business interests persuaded the mayor to keep things open. They had a big, I think, St. Patrick's Day parade. And the experience was very different. The, the, there was basically twice as many deaths during that kind of heart of the pandemic in Philadelphia that there was in St. Louis. So we resolved from that moment, you know, Brian and I, like looking at this, we, we basically had this crystallization that is very clear that in a global pandemic, local actions matter. And we just from that moment on, decided we were going to do uh, everything we could. We were going to kind of turn city government inside out to have an impact on this, even though we don't have, we have, we have no department of health in the, in the city. We don't run our own social services. Uh, but we, what we, you know, here, a few quick examples of what we ended up doing with the resources we did have. We created a fusion team, we called it, of 10 city staffers with different backgrounds, uh, some of the best researchers and data people in the city. And we, we, we got them scouring the world really for best practices. They came back very quickly. We were sure in early March of 2020 that masking was gonna be a really important strategy, even though at that moment you had the CDC saying masking, they weren't recommending masking. Our state health officials were saying it. As they were saying that, I was signing off on a purchase order to buy literally a truckload of bold denim and ship it to Burlington where we teamed up with local volunteers and textile companies, the Vermont Teddy Bear Company, and we started fabricating masks. We set a goal. Um, it, it was pretty, we, we had a sense that Vermont would start reopening in mid-May, and we set a goal of basically having a mask for everyone who wanted one um, by that time, and we, we delivered on that. We, we fabricated 26,000 masks, high-quality masks that were sort of designed to uh, be the equivalent of surgical masks, and distribute them to congregate housing settings, to uh, essential workers and, and senior facilities. So that was one, one step. Um, in the summer of 2020, we were one of the first cities in the country. We, we run our own water companies. We, uh, we worked with some labs to start a wastewater testing program that uh, allowed us to uh, uh, no, early on, you know, one thing about wastewater testing, the virus shows up in the wastewater testing before people start showing up in, in the hospitals. And so 
it allowed us uh, at a few key moments in the fall of 2020 to alert the community saying we're, we're detecting in the new, new north end, we're getting significant samples. I think people changed their behavior as a result. I think it's one of the things that it gave us actionable information. And then uh, a third example that we did that I don't think too many um, places tried, we, we, we created a supportive quarantine program staffed by city workers that that really made it easy. We checked in with, with people, someone was in quarantine because they were moving back to the state and we were like students coming back to the community. They quarantined for, for two weeks. We checked in with them every day. We brought them and food if they needed. We gave them gift cards for uh, uh, delivery. Um, and in at least uh, one case, we know that someone who was in quarantine had applied for a job in a nursing home and uh, then came back with positive during while they were in quarantine. So. You know, you add all this and dozens of other initiatives up, and I think it had an impact. Burlington, at the end of it, uh, if you, you know, look at our stats, unlike the New York Times uh, tracker, were in the 95th or 96th percentile of, of cities in the country in terms of transmission rates. And I, I got to believe that uh, the local actions did make an impact in that. And now tell me, because so you spent 10 years getting your city back on financial footing. And when this all went down, there was no support for cities our size, none. Yeah. So you're shutting down your economy and your revenues for the city. Talk to me about how you tried to think about the economics of the of the pandemic in order to make sure that there was a, you could keep your city functioning. And yeah. All that work was was for naught. You know, um, tying kind of threads this conversation together, we 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 kind of caught a, a bit of a break in that literally we had just completed that eight-year journey of putting the finances back together in, in like January of 2020. And the final step of that did involve selling this asset at the Burlington Telecom. And the city got back of the, the $17 million that had lo been lost, we got about half of that back. And we were sitting um, and, and, and we hadn't decided what to do with it yet. So we were sitting on millions of dollars of cash in a way that's quite unusual for, uh, you know, uh, more than our reserve policy. We, we now have a you know, careful reserve policy. So one thing, uh, it, having put all that effort, I think it does sort of speak to like, it really does matter to have your, your finances in order. Being in a, such a strong position, I was able on March 23rd, you know, very early in the pandemic to go to the city council and say, we don't know exactly what's coming at us, the administration needs to be able to spend money and act quickly to do anything we can to save lives. Please, uh, we, they signed off on reallocating a million dollars uh, to the, the pandemic response effort and, and with, you know, basically very flexibly, which is very unusual in our system. And that allowed us to fund some of these initiatives and more that I was just talking about. And with that, we leveraged, um, Ultimately, of course, there did end up being some emergency supports for the pandemic effort. So I think all of our uh, emergency responses ended up taking something like four and a half million dollars. So that, mil that first million dollars allowed us to be so active that we there was like four and a half million dollars of activity ultimately. You know, we, another thing that I think we, uh, we got focused on very early on was making sure that we had a equitable kind of racially just response to the pandemic and the recovery. So, and this goes to your economic question, when the PPP program and these other business supports started coming down, we, and it became clear that there was this a pretty good chance that, you know, if left unchecked, you were going to end up supporting the businesses with good banking relationships, not the 
you know, ref, we, we have a large refugee population in Burlington and, and um, many of whom have become entrepreneurs. So we, we focus city government on trying to uh, assist businesses that, that were kind of on, on the margin. We really worked hard to get the money out to uh, businesses that didn't have those established banking relationships, have helped them set them up with community credit unions and whatnot. And um, in the end, we did very well with respect, you know, kind of was a big race, right? Who can get as much of this PPP money? Vermont and Burlington did very well on that. And we had a lot of intentionality around getting that money out to the most vulnerable businesses. And as a result, we've had very, very, uh, I've never, I haven't seen hard stats on this, but my sense is we haven't had anything like the one in six businesses in New York City, for example, closing. We've, we've, we had very few business co- closures relative to that. In fact, I, I imagine that Burlington is now an attractive place for people who were looking for, you know, to get out of the cities and move into to smaller communities. Um, are you seeing an influx of remote workers? Yeah, we, we really are. I mean, really throughout, it, uh, people started to notice how well Vermont was doing with the virus control as soon as like May of, of 2020. So we had a mask ordinance in, in place. You know, we had like masks mean business signs printed up and, and people understood pretty quickly that they could have a relatively safe shopping experience in Burlington. We worked very hard to open up our public right-of-ways. Uh, we, normally it's a very long, it's a kind of detailed, permitting process, we kind of ended all that and had these emergency, per- emergency permitting some retailers and restaurants could be using the public right away. And we saw quite a bit of commerce through the summer of 2020. Absolutely, home sales went through the, the roof throughout the, you know, as soon as, from early on, people started buying places in Vermont. And this of course has, it has meant some economic vitality um, there's certainly some people who sold their homes who did spectacularly well relative to what they had, you know, probably were expecting up until then. It has intensified our housing uh, pressures as well. As well, so it's a, this double is a kind short. of a double-edged sword. Exactly. <laughs> Can I ask? I mean, so we're at the New Deal conference, and you and I have been doing this uh, New Deal thing for years. And I'm looking around at all these new New Dealers who are fresh and ready to go. What do you think has changed about your leadership style as you as you head into your fourth term? How do you think you're a different mayor than you were in your first term? Well, I'm very grateful for for the New Deal and some other support organizations that have have grown, frankly, uh, throughout this decade and really accelerated some of their growth uh, during the pandemic. I've gotten, so I, I, I certainly know a lot more about mayoring now than I did that, that day uh, when I never served on the city council. And in part, I, I credit that to being able to come here and talk to dozens of other mayors over the years, understand how they have been leading. I mean, many of the initiatives that some of the initiatives we've been talking about already, a lot of them I picked up one piece or another from this conference or the Mayor's Innovation Project, or certainly during the pandemic, um, what the Kennedy School and the Bloomberg Philanthropies did to set up weekly briefings for mayors. I mean, I w- the governor's staff uh, from Vermont would sometimes joke that the mayors were like, you know, a week or two ahead of the governors during that period because we were getting just incredibly incredible public health information it's both, I think, a beauty and a challenge of our system that, you know, there, there are so many different backgrounds that can be your entrance into politics. It isn't, we aren't like China where they train their municipal managers for decades, right? That I, th- I think one thing that we do need to find as a country, a way to sort of codify is uh, 
finding a way to make sure new mayors do get a proper kind of orientation and, and training uh, is is really important and something that is sort of emerging, but is very entrepreneurial and decentralized in the way that like America is, yes, right? Right. How else have I changed? I mean, I am I had the right instinct for this from early on, but I, I fully believe in it. It'd be one of my any advice to a new mayor is it's really worth the time to get your leadership team right and to spend the personal time necessary to cajole people into city life. I mean, at least I think it's a little bit different in big cities, but in small cities, um, it's not an obvious career path for, for, for motivated, talented people necessarily to go into city government, but you got to get, you got to find someone at that right moment where they're ready, they're eager, wanting to do something new and, show them what a great experience it's going to be to help lead a, lead a community. So I've had, I've had real success with that of, of pulling people from other backgrounds into city government where they've served really, really important roles. And I think it's, it's one of the most important duties of the mayor is to assemble that team. Something that's very different now than when I was first elected, maybe, you know, not all, I, I wouldn't say this is necessarily a good thing. I, the, uh, I've, I had this visceral experience that the day Donald Trump was elected that my job and sort of said, I think the job every elected official changed. I mean, it, it was such a, what he ended up representing as a, as a threat to our institutions was something that it, in the early days, I found somewhat energizing, pushing back against that, keeping the city committed to the goals of the Paris Accord, fighting against some of his draconian immigration policies, not allowing our policemen to be deputized as, you know, uh, immigration officials, essentially. So uh, that, that it became a new part of the job. But sadly, what I also found is that he contributed, even at the local level, the coarsening of our public discussions and debates. We're really struggling with it right now. I mean, the obscenities and aggressiveness in our public debates right now is, um, uh, it doesn't feel healthy. It seems like something we've got to somehow find a way to um, move back to a more civil, um, collaborative style. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I always thought it'd be a little bit different at the local level, especially in smaller cities where everyone still has to see each other and our kids are still in the same sports leagues or theater camps or whatever, but it seems to have just infected and it's going to take a while, I think, to, to roll that back. What do you see in the sort of our final few moments here? What do you see as the future of small cities? You know, what's the future? What's Burlington like in 20 years with all these changes, good and bad, that we've talked about and challenges and opportunities? Where, where's, where's your city going to be 20 years from now and when you're long out of office and, and the, there's a couple of successors down the line? It's, it's clear to me Burlington has, has a very bright future, as do I think a lot of other um, small cities uh, around the country. I mean, as you and I were just talking last night, it, this is an area of uh, real growth in these small cities relative, maybe the fastest growing part of the country. And, and I, uh, I think some of the big shifting forces are, are, are driving that. And so, I mean, what I mean by that is for, for, for hundreds of years, it was very hard to make a living in Vermont. That's really changed between having outstanding information technology resources, broadband resources in our community to, and having a world-class airport that flies to, I think we're up to like 14 cities now. It's a city-owned airport. You know, we've, we've grown the number of cities we fly directly to. You can really be sort of engaged in the commerce of the world 
um, and working out of, uh, out of Burlington. Um, we have these world-class institutions, a great uh, medical, academic medical center, uh, great colleges and a growing tech sector. One of the exciting things happening right now in Burlington is we have a company called Beta, which is winning the race internationally to become the first electric airplane manufacturer. I just signed off last week on they're building a 350 square foot manufacturing facility at our airport to start. They're going to start producing them by 2023. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of economic opportunity now in a way that just a few decades ago there simply wasn't. Climate emergency, we are starting to see kind of climate refugees. People are sick of having to deal with the, the fires out your way yeah. or the hurricanes in the center of the country, coastal issues. They are starting to relocate and they are doing so knowing that we have made a community committed doing more than our fair share of, of addressing the climate emergency some, I think increasingly that, that businesses find that it, that's one of the reasons Beta has located here is to be resonant with that kind of green branding. Uh, so I think all of that will work to strengthen and, and grow the city going forward. We, I think, we, we certainly a challenge um, and, and something that has held Vermont back and been a negative, frankly, about about the the state uh, is our whiteness. I mean, we are an overwhelmingly white state. That is starting to change in Burlington. We have been a refugee resettlement community for like 40 years now. We are being very intentional about um, trying to be an inclusive and welcoming city for all. We've dramatically, we've created it just in the last, in, in 2019, we created the first racial equity, inclusion, and belonging department within the city, and we've grown it dramatically over the last couple of years. So this is going to become one of Burlington's strengths going forward. The big challenge and the big threat, I think, to this vision is, are we able to sort of shed these conservative New England policies that have really constrained our ability to grow housing to to make it possible for housing essentially to be a human right. We have major housing pressures in Burlington. We are one of the most, if you, if you compare our, our incomes to our rents, we're one of the least affordable communities in the country. The answer to that is building building new homes. It's been a major focus of mine for since being elected. I mean, it is the background I had. We built more than 14, 1,500 homes in the last decade, but we've got to build thousands more. Um, at, one of the things that I'm rolling out right now is sort of the next chapter of our housing agenda, looking at changing the zoning citywide so that um, it's not just a few pockets of the city that are creating housing opportunity that uh, I would like to, you know, I think what Minneapolis and some West Coast cities have done now of essentially ending the prohibition on anything other than single family homes and big swaths of the city has to change. Uh, this is both a great challenge to, I think, many blue cities across the country and an area where I feel some optimism. This YIMBY movement, this realization that we are doing this to ourselves is dawning on folks, and I think we're going to turn this around. I like it. So I plan on getting back to Burlington as soon as possible before the end of your term. <laughs> uh, this time you got to let me know. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. If I have 24 hours in Burlington, I will spend more. But if I had 24 hours in Burlington, or our listeners do, Give us a rundown. Give us an itinerary. All right. Well, I, I think maybe when, when you come down, we shall, I'll meet you at, at Myers Bagels down on Pine Street, this uh, industrial kind of section of town where we have these 
Montreal style bagels, which are, are different than any other uh, kind of New York bagels. They're smaller. They kind of these gnarled things baked in uh, these wood fired ovens. They're awesome. So you can start there and then we'll hop on the, the, the this bike path that um, is sort of the, one of the foundational bike paths for all the bike paths across the country. We had a case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court for us to use these old uh, rail, this rail right away for biking. So we have an eight mile long bike path that uh, we've just completely rebuilt in the last few years. We're just putting the final touches on the last section as we speak and we'll all bike past uh, this transformed post, you know, what used to be in the 60s, uh, post-industrial abandoned waterfront is now, um, as we were just talking a little bit before, has just these beautiful public spaces and activities, places you can pull off your bike and dive in the water or in, enjoy beautiful parks, workout areas, get up into, you can actually, I'll, I'll allow you to recommend even that you uh, leave Burlington <laughs> on the bike path for a couple hours and get up onto this incredible causeway, rail causeway out in the center of the lake. You got water on both sides, Green Mountains on one side of you, Adirondacks on the other, New York Times said it was one of the top three places in the world or something to ride a bike. Then you turn around, come back to Burlington. We, uh, if, you know, if you've picked your day right, we can get on to the pedestrian marketplace and, and enjoy either one of the gr country's great jazz festivals in the first 10 days of June or later in the summer, we have this Festival of Fools, these great uh, performances of uh, jugglers and uh, every kind of street performance you can imagine. And after taking that all in, we have outstanding uh, James Beard award-winning uh, restaurants along Church Street. And you can finish the day in our newly restored City Hall Park watching fountains and performers uh, uh, up against the, the backdrop of, uh, of, of City Hall. And we can, which uh, as you can imagine, is, is one of my favorite <laughs> spots. So it's, a, it's, it's really a wonderful place to visit. I hope uh, you and your listeners will, will do that. And we'll work, we, can, um, we, can, we can work on some refinements to that too. I am uh, totally, totally sold. Uh, totally sold. I will be there uh, as soon as it's not freezing. Uh, <laughs> California boy going out to Vermont. Uh, you gotta, I gotta ease into it. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being a New Deal leader. You've been an inspiration to all of us and everything from some of the hard issues around opioids and how we can respond as a community to some of the exciting economic revitalization projects that we can model. I really appreciate everything you're doing for your community, but also for, for mayors of small cities all across this country. Ryan, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I've I've, I've you know this fulfills one of my uh, mayoral goals. I you know I finally earned my way onto the podcast. Um, thank you for what you do to spread. I think this it's important that we all um, because of how decentralized and disaggregated our whole local government system is. Having a podcast like this to uh, share lessons learned is really important. Thank you for what you're doing. It's been a pleasure being with you. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.